Good morning, church family. Thank you for being here today on this beautiful morning. So today we will be reading John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible version if you want to follow along with me. John chapter 4, verse 7 says this. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman puzzled, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to drink. You draw with, and the, water, the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. And then the woman, seemingly puzzled, says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty and come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go and call your husband. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is, your, is not your husband. This you have said correctly. She seemingly wants to change the subject. Verse 19. The woman said to him, uh, I'm uncomfortable. And sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus closes this section and says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. I have a question for you. When was the time that you were thirsty? When was the time that you were thirsty? Now, I'm not talking about a time where you needed a Gatorade, okay? But a time that you thought that you might die without a sip of water. What is that feeling like? Imagine that you are desperately thirsty without water in sight. What are your emotions what are your thoughts? When I was 17 years old, uh, my, sister, my twin sister and I, I am a twin, her name is Bethany. She's much smarter and better looking than I am. Uh, but my twin sister and I decided to hike to the top of Half Dome in Yosemite Valley. It was a 17-mile uh, hike, round trip, almost a mile up in elevation gain, and I had nothing more to drink but a water bottle like this. Now, uh, I, I, I thought I was invincible and really thought nothing of it. We were like that when we were a teenager. Well, you know what happened. On the, well, on the way back down the trail, thirst consumed me. I remember wimping out, panicking, headaches, fear, 
And then somewhere along the path, salvation. Somewhere along the path, I, the world's most beautiful water fountain was sitting there. And I remember what it looked like even to this day, some almost 20 years ago. Perhaps there's nothing more terrifying than being desperately thirsty without water in sight. This image is the image of life. That without Christ, we are thirsty. Our souls are thirsting for something to satisfy. Our body desires to feel alive, renewed, and purposeful. So we search oftentimes outside of God, outside of Christ for satisfaction. And often we find only mouthfuls of sand. But even Christians can fall prey to thirst. Sometimes in life we get so consumed by the world, so weighed down by stress or worry, beaten down by discouragement or sin, that we abandon the living water, running after gall, which promises satisfaction, but leaves us thirstier. Spiritual thirst is the core issue that I see in John chapter 4. And there is only one person that can satisfy The core issue that I see in John chapter 4 is spiritual thirst. And there's only one person that can satisfy. Because today we see a thirsty woman. She is searching for something. She is searching, she has come to Jacob's well to find water, H2O. But she is searching for something so much deeper to satisfy her soul. So we see this woman... And then we see Jesus, who is above all, who is Savior to all, offering to her this outcast of society, of her own people. He is offering to her living water that will never run dry. So with this in mind, come back with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26 is the conversation that we see between the Samaritan woman and the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. We see their conversation, and their conversation breaks down into three main sections. You have uh, Jesus' offer in verses 7 through 14. You see her obstacle in verses 15 through 18. And then we see God's openness, I would say, to verses 19 through 26. But before we really dive in too deep to the the living water, to Jesus' offer, I want to revisit the setting or the background of our story in verses 1 through 6. If you have your copy of the scripture, you can follow along. It says this, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, therefore, notice that word, therefore, when the Lord, notice that, Jesus, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus then left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour of the day. Now, now we talked about a whole sermon just on these basically six verses, but just very quickly, what do we see? What's the very first word that we come to? It's the word therefore. Now, what is the therefore doing here? It is, 
It is linking chapter 3 with chapter 4. It's linking the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. And what is it doing? Because of chapter 3, because of the end, because Jesus is from above, because He is above all, drag that in together with us to chapter 4. Because He is from above. Can I do, let's just not let that get old. Because Jesus is not just a man, but that He's fully divine... Because Jesus is from above, He is therefore above all, and He is now, in chapter 4, He is now Savior to all, including the outcasts of society. No outcast is cast outside of Jesus' reach. And here is the sovereign ruler and creator of the universe, limitless in essence, yet in limited form, wearied from His journey in verse 6. He arrives at Jacob's well, Jacob's well, a shrine to Judaism, and there he is, as savior of the world, as a Jewish man, limitless in essence, but in limited form, speaking to a Samaritan woman who is an outcast from her own people, and who has been outcast from the Jews, and she is there in order to avoid public shame, she is there at noon. In the hottest part of the day, she walks a further distance from water that is closest to her to avoid the public shame of her people. And here is this outcast of her own society. And here is the sovereign creator of the world talking at Jacob's well. And notice what Jesus offers this woman, this outcast. Verse 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And my parents would ask for me to say please after that. Okay, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said, how, wait, wait, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Notice the puzzled voice she has. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What does Jesus offer her? Jesus offers her living water. The living water here is a metaphor to describe the spiritual cleansing and the new life that comes at salvation that transforms us from the inside out through the power of the Spirit. But, but then notice, as I've already pointed out, notice the shock on her voice in verse 9. It says, how is it that you, being a Jew, you have nothing to do with me? You Jews have rejected us as Samaritans. How is it that you, being a Jew, have asked me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Here is this woman who is the bottom of the barrel in her culture. She is forsaken, she is mocked, she is shamed by her people. And here is this random Jewish man who is supposed to hate her, is supposed to reject her as well. And here he is asking for a drink. Pull in chapter 3 with me. That Jesus is fully divine, that he is deity. Now, catch something. Because Jesus is fully divine, what does he know? Since Jesus is sovereign, he knows everything about you and me. 
I'm not sure that provides many of us comfort, okay? But, <laughs> okay, uh, uh, okay. So since Jesus is sovereign ruler and creator over the world, he knows everything about you and me, but take that back 2,000 years ago. Since Jesus is the sovereign creator of the world, he knows everything about this woman. He knows that she is a sinner. He knows everything about her personal life. But Jesus does not hold her mistakes against her. Jesus does not discard her based on her sin, based on the opinions of others, but rather Jesus looks beyond her mistakes to find the value that she is, that she is valuable to God, that despite her mistakes, that she is still created in the image of God, and she is worthy to save. Friends, we should be like Jesus, that if the sovereign and the savior of the world is able to look past the sins of others to save a wretch like her and like me and like you, if he is willing to look beyond her sin to share with her love, then we should as well. Friends, sometimes we are so focused on what people show us on the outside that we either accept them or that we reject them. But here, Jesus knows perfectly well her sin and her history and her mistakes, and he decides to at Jacob's well at a shrine to Judaism to talk to somebody that the Jews have rejected to show her love and care and to present her with the most precious gift of all, eternal life as a gift of God. The gospel. Friends, let us not be so self-consumed. Let us not be so worried about what people show us on the outside that we forego sharing the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, His Son. Who is somebody that we have overlooked in our lives as somebody that is not worthy to hear the gospel? Who is somebody that we have pushed aside, perhaps somebody that we do not feel that is worthy? But here Jesus overlooks all of her mistakes. And can I just say it this way? Jesus overlooks all of our mistakes to present to us the gospel. New life. So Jesus offers to her living water. But if you notice that she interprets it very differently than Jesus, right? Notice her response in verse 11. She said to him, Kurios, or Lord, or Master, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And what the well is deep, where then do you get this living water? Right? Notice her bewilderment, right? Because she knows that something is off, because here's this random Jewish man sitting at her well that she has walked a long distance away. It's in the middle, hottest part of the day, and Jesus is offering her living water, but then what does she say? You have nothing to draw with. She's confused. She thinks what Jesus is offering her is H2O, right? But he's not. Notice her bewilderment continues in verse 12. You are, you, are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks of this water, H2O, this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
what does Jesus offer her? He offers her living water. But then notice what does he do in the latter part of verse 14. He then explains what that water is. It is a well. Notice, she's, he asked her for a drink, but now he's giving her a well, an ocean, so to speak. Not just a drink, but a well of water. What does it say? Springing up to eternal life. What does he really offer her? He's not offering her a drink of H2O. He's offering her eternal life. But it's more than that. The gospel here is more than just eternal life, but it is a well of water springing up. I want you to think about something. So far we have spent, I I don't know, I think 17 weeks going through the Gospel of John, and we probably have 250 more to go. I'm not sure how long it's going to take me to get through here. We'll just have to figure that out. But I want you to think about the Gospel of John so far. John chapter 1 is the prologue, and then you have the disciples, and then you have the wedding at Cana, and then you have Jesus clearing the temple. And then you have John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, and he presents to him how eternal life. And then we have the end of chapter 3, but... I want you to notice something here that Jesus offers. This is the first time that I can think of. This is the first time that Jesus describes how the gospel not just gives me eternal life, not just changes my eternal address, but also changes my earthly life. Because if you think about it to Nicodemus, he, Jesus talks to him and says about being born again, and being born again gives him now entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But here... In John chapter 4, in the pages of this story that, that by all cultural indications shouldn't be here, this should have never happened, but here Jesus really for the first time in the Gospel of John unfolds that the Gospel not just changes my eternal address, but it changes my earthly life as well. She is thirsty now, and Jesus promises her living water that will satisfy her now. If I can give you a tagline to remember that Jesus satisfies thirst. That Jesus satisfies our spiritual thirst. The gospel is living water. It satisfies our soul. It satisfies our soul in heaven and it satisfies our soul on earth. Do not be confused. Do not be mistaken. I think sometimes... We just think about the gospel that is just this thing that happens in heaven. That's just something that I will inherit when I die, which is true. But the gospel does more than that. It changes my earthly life now and here and now. Let me just ask you a question right where you are. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then let me ask you the question. I would imagine you can answer this. How has the gospel changed your life now? Not just when you die, and it's just not something you know, but the gospel. I'm sure your testimony, even if you believed as a four-year-old, you would say that Jesus Christ has changed your life now. Friends, the gospel is living water, living spiritual satisfaction now. Just think about all the ways the gospel changes our earthly life. The gospel provides us hope now. That this world isn't all there is. The gospel gives us hope now that Jesus is returning. Amen. Come soon. COVID's driving me crazy. All this stuff. That Jesus is returning and he will make all things new. The gospel gives us confidence now that through the power of the Holy Spirit we can face the challenges of tomorrow. The gospel gives us value now. 
The gospel tells me that I'm not an ape that evolved and that my sole meaning of life is to reproduce. The gospel tells me that I am a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, having God's inseparable love and a purpose to serve. The gospel changes my attitude now, now that I am forgiven, that I can forgive. The gospel changes my outlook now that I am in this world, but I am not of this world. The gospel, do not be confused, it is living water now and then. It changes my earthly life now, and it changes my eternal life then. Has the gospel, let me just ask you the question, has the gospel truly changed your life? But I, I'm not going to dive in too much on this rabbit trail, but, but what is the verification? <laughs> what is the verification that this woman's soul is quenched? Now, not just then. If you notice in verse 28, I won't go too much in that. We're going to go talk about it more next week. But the verification that the gospel's living nature now is the fact that she leaves her water pot to run to people that have shamed her with the gospel that she has heard. My first point today is point number one. The gospel is living spiritual satisfaction now. Jesus offers her living water. But this story then gets very personal. Notice what is her obstacle. Notice what is keeping her from believing in Jesus. Verse 15. This woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to drink nor to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said to him, Well, I have no husband. And Jesus, which is kind of half-truth. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. What is her obstacle? What is keeping her from understanding and believing in the soul satisfaction of the gospel? It's one word. It is men. Notice how many times that this woman has been married. She's been married five times. Now, I thought that Hollywood actors got married a lot. Okay. But she has been married and divorced five times, and now she is living with her boyfriend. But, but why does Jesus point this out? Right? Because Jesus, in, in, in realistically speaking, could have been sharing the gospel with her without confronting her sin. Why does he point out the thing that, she is, that is holding her back from believing? I want you to think about all of the times that Jesus shares the gospel in the gospels to individuals. I want you to think about all the times that Jesus presents the truth that he is the Savior of the world, that he has come to die for us. What does he do? What does he point out every time? Think about Nicodemus. What does he point out to Nicodemus? What is Nicodemus' obstacle? It is religion. And how does Jesus confront him about that? John chapter 3 says, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Think about the rich young ruler. What does he confront him about? What does he say is replacing his need for God? He says, go sell all you have and give to the poor. The rich young ruler has placed riches in the place in the void of his life that only God is meant to fill. And here is this woman of Samaria. She is trying to find solace. She is trying to find spiritual satisfaction in men. 
She has placed men in the void of her heart that only God is meant to fill. I believe this. I believe that every person that has ever existed has a God-shaped hole in their soul that only God is meant to fill. And without Jesus Christ, we inevitably take something that makes us feel good, or that gives us satisfaction, that gives us worth, and we put it in that place instead of searching, instead of believing in the sole satisfaction of the gospel. But there is a problem. People in the world, we as non-believers, like to fill our soul with things that make us feel good, things that give us satisfaction, things that we find value in, such as religion or riches or opposite-sex relationships. But the problem of stuffing things into our soul to make us feel good is not just a problem in the world, but it also can be a problem in the life of every believer. Friends, I know we know here, and I know we probably know experientially, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know that the gospel does change your life. You've experienced new birth, living water. But sometimes, what do we do when Jesus doesn't quite satisfy? What do we do? You know, life happens. When life gets hard, sin inevitably gets more exciting. And then the slowly the enemy whispers in our ear that sin will satisfy more than the sun. And then slowly we bury the living water under rubble of sin. Friends, only the love of God can truly satisfy our deepest needs and desires. So many times when God lets us down, when we are struggling, when we are discouraged, when we are depressed, when we are angry, we try to run to the quickest thing to make us feel a little bit better. But sin is like a bag of potato chips. It promises us satisfaction, but we end up being thirstier for more. Friends, I, I don't know what you run to. I don't know what you seek out to make yourself feel better when God disappoints you, when God seemingly lets you down. But what I would encourage you to do is just to realize that you run to the things that will never satisfy you, and that you would see that God is the living water, that He is the only one to satisfy our thirst. The Samaritan woman is looking for that one thing to quench her thirst, and she has tried to find it in men, and only when she recognizes her obstacle will she be able to receive and understand the provision of the gospel. My second point today is the gospel is living satisfaction now, so we should remove obstacles. So Jesus offers in verses 7 to 14, living water, her obstacle to faith, to understanding the true meaning and of living waters in verses 15 through 18. But then notice what Jesus tells her next. He reminds her of God's openness to be worshipped by all. Notice verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, and you people, notice that, you people say that, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now, I want you to notice a couple different observations. I think the Samaritan woman in verses 15 through 18 gets a little bit uncomfortable because she quickly changes subjects, okay? Well, we won't talk about my, my marital relationships. Let's just move on to something that's a little bit too sensitive. And then she changes the subject to worship, 
But then what do you notice about this woman in verse 19? She says, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where, fa- where men ought to worship. What do you notice about her? I find it kind of interesting is that she is externally, I'll say that, she's externally sincere in her faith. She is externally sincere in her faith. She perceives he is a prophet. She knows that the Messiah is coming in verse 25. She knows where to worship. This woman is externally sincere. But then notice how Jesus responds to her sincerity, to her knowledge and external sincerity and religiosity. Notice verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. How does Jesus respond to her sincerity, her external religiosity? He says to her, he reminds her, actually informs her of God's openness, that God, here at a time that is coming, that God can be worshipped by all. In verse 21 to 22, at the moment of Jesus' death, I mean, think about what is about to come, that he is standing there in the first century talking to the Samaritan woman, an outcast of outcasts, a woman that has been banished from her people, He is sitting there talking about how God can soon be worshipped. And when does that come? When can God no longer be worshipped out, no longer be worshipped in the temple? At the moment of Jesus' death. And upon God's approval of Jesus' death and by evidence in the resurrection, at the moment that God is no longer limited to worship in Jerusalem or in the mountain in Samaria, but He can be worshipped by all in all locations. I just want you to think about that, how crazy that would be if I were a Jewish person growing up in the first century. Because your whole life you have been told that you're supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship God. But then all of a sudden he is telling that basically the Samaritan woman that all will soon be able to worship. Why? Because soon the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will be sacrificed for our sins and the veil will be now torn in two, granting access to all. Not just to those that come to the temple, but because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, because the veil was torn in two, that soon all people in all nations, in all locations, can now worship God. But notice, not only is God's worship open to all, but those who truly worship must worship in two things. Must worship in spirit and truth. But what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? A scholar adds this, he says this, the word spirit, listen to this, the word spirit in verse 23 does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but to the human spirit. Jesus' point here is that a person must worship not simply by external conformity to religious rituals and places, but inwardly in spirit, with a proper heart attitude. The reference to truth refers to God, worshiping God, consistent with what is revealed in the Scripture. 
So what is, let's just put it all together. What is Jesus pointing out in verses 19 through 26? That soon there will come a time where God can be worshipped by all in his worship. Worshipping the Lord is now with sincerity internally in our human spirit and also with accuracy according to truth. But let's just, let's just talk about this. Why does, why does Jesus really address the issue of worship with this Samaritan woman. Her worship is only externally sincere. Why? It's because of her issue with men. She has not found the living water. She is not worshiping God according to spirit and truth. She is not. She is trying to find satisfaction in men. And she is only worshiping God externally. But God is not interested. Can I just say this to us as well? God is not interested in her or in our external rituals and habits. God is not interested in worship that just goes through the motions. But God looks at our hearts. He sees if we are worshiping in spirit and according to truth. My third point today is this. The gospel is living spiritual satisfaction now, so we must remove the potato chips, okay? We must remove the obstacles that continue to leave us thirsty, and we must worship God in spirit and in truth with sincerity and with accuracy. But then notice Jesus offers her the living water. He points out her obstacle as she gets a little uncomfortable probably in verse 18. And then Jesus talks about how he, God can be worshipped by all openly here soon. But then notice her final words in verse 25 and 26. says this, And the woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things. Now, okay. I imagine verse 25 in a certain way. I would imagine she does not say it like this. Well, I imagine, I know that the Messiah is coming and he will reveal, I think she's saying something, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes he will declare all things. I think she is now believing that this man named Jesus who is sitting at a well, she is believing that this man named Jesus is the Messiah and then notice his answer. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. But her story does not end here. Next week we will unpack the end of her story. And if there, her story ended here, we would have no idea if she believed. We would have no idea if she really experienced the living water of Jesus Christ and the gospel of a changed earthly life and a changed eternal life. But her story does not end here because next week we see her choice. What is beautiful about this story of redemption, what is beautiful about this story of a woman that has been outcast from her people, that has been shamed, what is beautiful is that she, we see that she believes, that we see that her life is transformed. How do we know? It's because she runs. She, well, first, she leaves her water pot, the very thing that she came to quench her thirst. She leaves her water pot, and then she goes and tells a whole town of the people that shamed her about the gospel, about the soul-quenching water of the gospel. My point today is since the gospel is living satisfaction 
remove our obstacles and worship with sincerity and accuracy. Since the gospel is living satisfaction now, so then we should remove the things that we place into our soul to give us satisfaction instead of finding our satisfaction, our hope, our encouragement in God. We should remove the obstacles and that we should worship outside of these walls with sincerity and with accuracy. So the question is, in my application, is so what? What's the point? Okay, how do I take this passage and apply it to my life? Really, application number one is a question. What are your obstacles? When God does not satisfy your inner soul, what sin do you reach to satisfy? Sin, as I've said, is like potato chips. It promises satisfaction, but leaves you empty and thirsty. Sin promises satisfaction. It tastes great for a moment, but it is terrible for you, and it will leave you hungry for more. When God, when you are discouraged, when you are tired, when you are wore out, when you are vulnerable, when you are hurt, when you are bitter, when you are angry, when you are sad, when you are hopeless, when you are lonely... What do you reach for to find satisfaction? What do you reach for to find satisfaction? She reached for men. Nicodemus reached for religion. The rich young ruler reached for money. What do we reach for? Friends, Jesus satisfies thirst. Can I just say that again? Jesus satisfies our thirst. But the knowledge and experience of the satisfaction can be buried under the rubble of sin. So let us rather recognize the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Application number two is this. What worship deficiency do we have? That's a quite simple question. Really, I'm asking is how is your worship? Do you worship in spirit and in truth outside of these walls? Do you worship not just with external rituals, and do you worship with truth? What worship deficiency do you have? Jesus satisfies thirst since the gospel is living satisfaction, remove obstacles, and worship with sincerity and with accuracy. That is my point today. If... I think some of us here today, can I say it this way, um, I think some of us here today are the Samaritan woman. We hear about the soul-quenching water, the living water, and we think about H2O, and we don't understand that the gospel is meant to quench my spiritual thirst and to change my earthly life and eternal life. Some of us here today are the Samaritan woman. If the gospel seems like blah, seems confusing, then I would say that you're not saved. That you do not have the Spirit of God living inside of you. The gospel should never get old. Can I just say it that way? I have been preaching the gospel every Sunday morning for at least two straight years. And it has never gotten old. 
If you have never been born again, if you do not have the living water that quenches your soul, if you do not understand and believe in the gospel, if you do not know Jesus Christ as a personal relationship with him, then what does he do? He offers you the gift of God, as he says here in John chapter 4. He offers you the gift that you only open by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've never believed in him, then believe in him and you shall be saved. Can I say it this way as well? If the gospel has never changed your life, then you may not be truly saved. Because as I see the scripture, as I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, God, and the book of Acts, every time we see somebody believe there's some change in their life, you may think that you're a Christian, but you may only be a Christian with knowledge and mental ascent, but you may not be a Christian through a new and redeemed and new cre- created spirit. Jesus Christ has come and he's died for you and he presents to you living water that if you believe in him that you will be saved. I pray today that you would see the obstacles that are keeping you from believing in him and that you would worship God with sincerity and with accuracy. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, I thank you for uh, my family and friends in this room. Uh, I thank you for a beautiful day outside. I hope that we would enjoy our Labor Day weekend. I imagine many people here, uh, outside of here today are. Lord, I pray for the non-believers in this room that they would trust in you as Savior, that they would find in you the satisfaction for their soul, thirsty soul. And Lord, I pray for the Christians, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. I pray for us that we would remove the obstacles of our life that are hindering our following of you, that we would lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and that we would uh, confess our sins because we know that you will forgive us. And Lord, I just pray that we would also worship you with sincerity, not just with external rituals or external acts, but internally, in our spirit. And Lord, that we would also worship you according to the truth that you have laid out in your scripture. Lord, I just thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he gives us an example to follow, to share the gospel with somebody that society has deemed unworthy. We are all unworthy of your gospel. And I thank you that you have approached her and all of us with the truth. And Lord, I just pray that we would live lives that would love people and that, that would glorify you in the community around us. Give us strength. Give us a love for our families and our friends. And I thank you for all those that are tuning in online. I pray for encouragement to them in this unprecedented, unprecedented season in this world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.